Anton Hellman here for the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast. If you haven't heard already, we've just launched a brand new podcast format on emergency medicine cases called EM Quick Hits. It's sort of at the other end of the spectrum from the main EM cases episodes. So rather than delve into deep discussions on broadish topics like we do in the main episodes for an hour or two, EM Quick Hits is about 30 minutes total and contains five-minute segments chosen from about 10 specific topics by 10 different experts and educators, hence the name Quick Hits. And the topics are ones that either aren't taught very well in training and or that physicians tend not to be so comfortable with. So toxicology, trauma, ophthalmology, orthopedics, resuscitation, human factors, addiction, and pediatric emergencies to start off with. And the lineup of regular experts and educators is freaking amazing. We've got Emily Austin, Peter Brindley, Chris Hicks, Michelle Clayman, Anna McDonald, Natalie May, Justin Morgenstern, Andrew Petrosoniak, Hans Rosenberg, Aaron Seal, and Anand Swami Nathan to make up the EM Quick Hits team. We'll also be featuring guest experts every now and again, like David Yerlink, who's going to give us some quick hits on common drug interactions. So wherever you get your podcast, check out on the Emergency Medicine Cases feed, the new EM Quick Hits podcast. And due to popular demand and a super fast sellout of the EM Cases course in February 2019, we've added a second EM Cases course for 2019 on June 24th. So save that date. And talking about courses, registration for the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in May is open now. Uh, It's Canada's biggest independent EM conference, and it'll have all the usual suspects as speakers, basically the best EM speakers in North America. And the EM Cases Quiz Vault I'm really excited about. It'll be released any day now, the final frontier of the EM Cases learning system, the icing on the cake to solidify everything you've learned on EM Cases and more, all for free on the EM Cases website. The Quiz Vault is about a thousand questions big so far, and will be closer to probably 2,000 by the end of 2019. We hired this amazing team of web designers to make it as user-friendly as possible, and we'd love your feedback once we get it launched. Now, I need to explain that the Quiz Vault isn't designed to test your knowledge per se. Really, it's been specifically designed for learning. So maybe you've heard of the term test-enhanced learning. Anyway, regardless, it's the pinnacle of learning in education theory. It's simply the best way to learn and retain EM after listening to the podcasts and reading the show notes and the Just for Nuggets emails um, and watching the Rapid Reviews videos. All right, time to get on with the show, stroke. You know, I was amazed to learn that not only is stroke the third leading cause of death in North America, but that according to the Global Burden of Disease study that just came out at the end of 2018, The estimated worldwide lifetime stroke risk for a 25-year-old is a whopping 25% and growing. I mean, that's insane. So I just wanted to give you that stat to put things into perspective a little bit when it comes to the recent advances in stroke management that we're going to talk about in this podcast. You know, there will come a time in the not-so-distant future where we'll talk of stroke management pre-2019 like we talk of 18th century barbers bloodletting patients to rid them of foul humors. I mean, sure, that may be a bit of a stretch, but it's no exaggeration to say that few fields are making such encouraging progress as the management of stroke. And again, the fact that stroke is one of the most morbid and time-sensitive diseases we see in the ED makes the advances in the field that much more exciting. When I started practicing years ago, the EM community had the general attitude that stroke patients were relatively easy to diagnose and very straightforward to treat from an ED perspective. You know, it was essentially get a CT, give ASA, and if there wasn't a bleed on CT, admit them for physio. And the general attitude was there really isn't much we can do. Then the growing volume of lytic literature stirred things up until about 2015 when stroke management in the ED was still relatively simple. At that time, if it was within three or four and a half hours of symptom onset, you'd call the code stroke. And if not, you get the plain CT, antiplatelet meds, and admit. But 
I got to say, the times, they are a change in. And in 2019, there's a whole lot more we can do for these patients, and it's a whole lot more complicated. Of course, by now, you've probably heard of the promise of endovascular therapy and the incredible ability interventionalists now have to pluck thromboembolism from increasingly intracerebral small vessels. Now, even if you don't buy any of the systemic thrombolytic literature, most of us agree that endovascular therapy at minimum holds promise. And as we transition from the very simple era of systemic thrombolytics, decision-making around which patients need what type of scanning, where, which patients should get systemic thrombolytics, and which patients should get endovascular therapy, it's all become much more complicated and varied depending on where you work. So in this EM Cases main episode podcast, a follow-up to our episode on TIA released in November 2018 with Walter Himmel and David Deshensky, we'll try to simplify the confusing time-based and brain tissue-based options for stroke management. We'll answer the questions that have been plaguing us for a while now, you know, which patients are eligible for endovascular therapies? Which patients are the ones who will benefit from these therapies, and how do we make that happen in our different practice environments? Which patients should we consider for lytic therapy? Which patients should be considered for both lytic and endovascular therapy? And a whole lot more. So without further ado, let's jump into a case. An 83-year-old woman from home presents to your community ED via EMS at 11 p.m. with speech difficulty and right-sided limb weakness. She was well until dinner time when her husband observed her slump over in her chair at 5 p.m., so that's six hours ago. Her past medical history includes a TIA three months prior for which she was started on ASA, diabetes, and hypertension. Her carotid Doppler was considered non-surgical at the time of the TIA. She has no known cardioembolic risk factors. Vital signs are normal except for a blood pressure of 175 on 100. She appears alert but unable to speak intelligibly and has an obvious facial droop. She's unable to lift her right arm or leg off the stretcher. ECG shows normal sinus rhythm. Cap glucose is slightly elevated and it's now 11.15 p.m., So we're a bit more than six hours in. Now, what you do with this patient depends a bit on your local resources. Do you even have a CT scanner at your rural hospital, for example? If you do have a CT scanner, does your hospital do CT perfusion scans as well? Can you get a CT angiogram and a CT perfusion scan within minutes? Who admits your stroke patients? Do you admit them? Does internal medicine admit them? Do you have a stroke team that admits them? How close is the closest stroke center? Is it a 30-minute drive? Is it a three-hour helicopter ride? So we'll try and cover all these variations on a theme in the next hour or so. Before we get deep into this with Dr. Himmel and Dr. Dushensky, I'm going to try to outline for you an algorithm that I'd like you to try and imagine in your head as we go through it. Of course, it'll be in the show notes to review afterwards. It's a bit complicated, so you'll need to listen carefully. And you'll see in the algorithm that under six hours, it's really all about door-to-needle time. And between four and a half and six hours, it's kind of a combo of door-to-needle time and salvageable brain tissue. And that over six hours, it's really all about salvageable brain tissue on CT perfusion. So this algorithm is assuming that you're at a stroke center, and we'll get into the non-stroke center algorithm later in the podcast. So here we go. If your patient has any kind of stroke and the door-to-needle time is predicted to be less than four and a half hours at the stroke center, get a plain CT, which will be used to decide if they get lytics, followed immediately by a CT angiogram, which will be used to decide if they get endovascular therapy, a thrombectomy. So that's under four and a half hours. What about four and a half to six hours? Well, lytics are out after four and a half hours, so your patient needs to go through the algorithm to see if they're candidates for a thrombectomy. Now, for this group of patients, the stroke has to have an NIHSS of six or more, or a positive VAN score, which we'll talk about exactly what that is in a bit. Both of these, the NIHSS and VAN score, mean that you've probably had a large vessel cortical stroke not just any kind of stroke that you consider in patients under four and a half hours. 
They'll also get a plain CT and CT angiogram, but to see if they're candidates for thrombectomy, they either get assessed on a score called the aspect score or they get a CT perfusion scan, depending on what kind of center you're at. The CT perfusion looks at the size of the core infarct compared to the size of the ischemic penumbra surrounding it, essentially a measure of salvageable brain tissue. So again, under four and a half hours, it's all stroke patients who get plain CT for lytic decisions and CTA for thrombectomy candidacy. Between four and a half and six hours, lytics are out, NIHSS or Vanscore is in, it's plain CT, CTA, and then either the aspect score or a CT perfusion for thrombectomy candidacy. Now, what about between six hours and up to 24 hours based on the latest Diffuse 3 and Dawn trials? Only patients with an NIHSS of greater than 10 are candidates for thrombectomy after six hours, whereas between four and a half and six hours, it was an NIHSS of six or greater, Between 6 and 24 hours, it's only patients that have an NIHSS of greater than 10 who may be candidates for thrombectomy. So all these patients will get three things. A plain CT, followed immediately by a CTA, followed immediately by a CT perfusion, again to assess for the size of the infarct and salvageable brain tissue. So that's it for patients who show up at a stroke center with a stroke. Again, under four and a half hours... It's all stroke patients who get plain CT for lytic decisions, CTA for thrombectomy candidacy. Between four and a half and six hours, lytics are out, NIHSS or Vanscore is in, it's plain CT, CTA, and either the aspect score or a CT perfusion for thrombectomy candidacy. And between six and 24 hours, it's NIHSS greater than 10, CT, CTA, CT perfusion to assess for eligibility for thrombectomy. And just remember that a tiny, tiny minority actually turn out to be eligible. So that's the stroke center algorithm in a nutshell. The non-stroke center algorithm is a bit more complicated because there's resource and time factors involved, but we'll get to that later. So you're probably dying to hear what Walter and Dave had to say at this point. So let's get into our first question that I posed to them about the Van score. Let's go! So, Dr. Himmel, it's my understanding that the patients who benefit most from endovascular therapy are those with large vessel occlusions. So, MCA, ACA, internal carotid artery. And there's a pretty recent assessment tool for the ED, way simpler than the NIHSS stroke scale, that uh, tries to help identify these patients. And it's called the VAN tool. And VAN stands for vision, aphasia, and neglect. So can you explain how the VAN assessment tool works and whether or not you think it's useful in the age of endovascular therapy? Well, the only patients who have benefited from thrombectomy so far were patients who had a large clot in the MCA, middle cerebral artery, or the intracranial internal carotid artery. There was a teeny cohort who benefited from a thrombectomy of the anterior cerebral artery, but teeny. It was mainly intracranial internal carotid or MCA or a branch of the MCA that was pretty close. So the real question is here, how do you identify these patients who have a real cortical stroke? Because frankly, the only people who have cortical strokes, by and large, are people who have a large vessel occlusion. If it's not a cortical stroke, you're not going to have a lot of features. You may have weakness, but nothing else. So you want to say, which of these patients have a stroke and which of these patients have a cortical stroke, which means a large vessel almost always. And here's what you do. First of all, they have to have weakness of an arm or a leg. Right off the bat, that's a stroke. But we know a pure, ordinary lacunar infarct could give you weakness and that does not qualify through a thrombectomy because it's not a large vessel. But if you have weakness and a hemianopsia, weakness and quadrinopsia, or weakness and dysphasia, not dysarthria, dysphasia, or if you have weakness and neglect, 
Those are the classical features of a cortical stroke. The moment you recognize this, there is a significant possibility of a large vessel occlusion, and they get CTAs to see if they qualify for a thrombectomy. Now, the study looked at the advanced score. It was very small. It had about 67 patients. It was a preliminary study, but the result was amazing. How many investigative clinical tools have a sensitivity of 100%? Almost none. This one did. 100% of the patients who had a large vessel occlusion had either weakness and hemianopsia or quadrinopsia, had weakness and dysphasia, or weakness and neglect. Of those patients who had no quadrinopsia, no dysphasia, no neglect, not a single one had a large vessel stroke. So they look for these characteristics because right away in your mind, you're saying to yourself, these characteristics are all present. This is a cortical stroke. This is the kind of person who might have a large vessel occlusion. We have to act quickly. So I think that's a, a really critical distinction that Walter is making there that's important for emergency physicians because in this era of endovascular therapy, this is one of the first decision points that we actually need to make in order to decide what we're going to do with these patients. So having a useful bedside tool for us is going to be really important as we move forward with this. And the van tool is is really interesting. As Walter mentioned, it's it's just a single small study right now. We'd love to see it uh, replicated in a, in a larger multi-center study. And it's not the only tool out there for us to help make this differentiation. Traditionally, this has always been made on the NIHSS stroke score. And uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the thresholds of greater than six and greater than 10 and so forth. But the fact is that's a, that's a fairly clunky detailed tool that a lot of emergency physicians are not that familiar or facile with. And a lot of people, I think, don't even know that there, are, there is actually a, a training program for this. You're supposed to be certified in how to administer this score. So having something that's a little bit simpler that helps us make this differentiation with a large vessel occlusion will be something that's very helpful for emergency physicians in the clinical bedside decision-making that we make. And Van, I think, has a lot of promise in that sense. For this patient, her Van score would suggest that she does have a large vessel occlusion. Even though she's over six hours, based on the current literature, it would be reasonable to have her assessed for the possibility of a thrombectomy, and she would need a CT angiogram and a CT perfusion. Let's say that this patient presented earlier and that you could get her on the cath table between four and a half and six hours. How would that change things, Dr. Himmel? Well, she's got a cortical stroke and substantial, so she still might be a person with large vessel thrombosis. She's beyond a four and a half hour window, so TPA is off the table. So you do exactly the same thing. She needs an urgent CTA. By urgent, I mean she needs it now. Okay. So Dr. Himmel, what exactly is the distinction then between the four and a half to six hour window and over six hour window? To a large extent, the distinction is based on the, on the history of stroke research. All those big massive studies published in 2015 were only done in patients who could have a thrombectomy up to six hours after their stroke. So until the last seven or eight months, if you thought you could have your thrombectomy by six hours and it was a cortical stroke, they would get an immediate CTA. With the publication of the Dawn trial and the FUSE 3 trial, they were extending the window up to 18, sometimes 24 hours. But they had very strict criteria. So quite frankly, if you're working in a stroke center and transfer is not a problem, treat them the same. Cortical stroke, they get a CT, CTA, bang, right on the spot. The interventionalists, though, in their heart know if it's under six hours, it's more likely that they have a large vessel occlusion, which, if treated, will help the patient. And they know after six hours, there is still major benefit, but statistically speaking, they're less likely to find the right appropriate patient. So they might be a little less 
insistent on getting a CTA immediately, but they'll still want it pretty bloody quickly. So basically, stroke, cortical stroke, under 18 or 24 hours, depending on the practice of the stroke center, they're going to do the same old thing. CT, CTA, perfusion CT, one, two, three, bang, bang, bang. Now, if you're working at a different center, if you transfer the patient, you're going to have to have a couple, a bit of nuance here in discussions with the neurologist on the phone. So then under four and a half hours, that's when a patient can be eligible for lytics and a thrombectomy. Over four and a half hours, lytics are off the table and it's just thrombectomy. Between four and a half and six hours, at minimum, you need a CT and a CTA to determine whether the patient would be eligible for, for a thrombectomy. And after six hours, they require a CT, CTA, and CT perfusion scan to see if they're, if they're eligible for a thrombectomy. So if you look at the research, they must have a perfusion scan or an MRI equivalent after six hours. If you look at the literature, between four and a half and six, a certain number of the patients did not have a perfusion scan. They had a CTCTA, of course. But if they didn't get a perfusion scan between four and a half and six hours, you have to keep two things in mind. It's because the perfusion scan wasn't available and because they used something else in place of the perfusion scan because the perfusion scan was not available. And the something they used in its place was the aspect score, which was the clinical score. But in 2018, in top-tier stroke centers, they're getting a CT, CTA, perfusion CT, bang, all at the same time in stroke centers. So that brings up the 98% of us who work in centers that aren't stroke centers. So knowing all these numbers between zero and four and a half and four and a half and six and after six, and knowing that in most emergency departments, we have limited access to advanced imaging. How do you change your approach if you're not in a stroke center for this 83-year-old lady with a probable large vessel occlusion who may be amenable to endovascular therapy after six hours of onset? Well, let's, let's address what the problems are first, and then we'll address what, what, I, what I do and what the neurologists I've seen want me to do. Here's the problem. Number one, the hospital you're at doesn't want everybody to get a CTCTA ordered time and time again. They're, gonna, they're just terrified they're going to be doing CTAs all day long. Number two, the stroke center you transfer patients to doesn't want you sending patients there 24 hours a day who've had strokes hours and hours ago to get CTAs when the vast majority have no large vessel stroke. So those are the problems. The system is going to be overburdened with doing CTAs in every single person who might have a stroke. So they've had to work out rational protocols. They've also had to work out another protocol. Where do you do the CTA? Do you transfer them into the stroke center to CTA? Or do you see, do the CTA at your hospital? They've had to try to figure out what can we do with the risk is manageable where your hospital does some of the work and where the stroke center doesn't get overburdened and massacred by something that's impossible for the system to do. If it's under four and a half hours and on the table is both TPA plus or minus a thrombectomy and it's under four and a half hours, consider just transferring right off the bat. If it's after six hours, TPA is off the window if you've got a CT at your hospital and they may be candidates for thrombectomies after six hours, then you do the CT CTA at your hospital very quickly. And if it's between four and a half and six hours, you can have, take one of two pathways between four and a half and six hours. TPA is off the window. So here's one pathway. You do the CT CTA at your hospital or pick up the phone call the neurologist and say, what do you want us to do? Do you want me to do the CTCTA or do you want us to transfer and you do the CTCTA? And they'll tell you. So I would say basically under four and a half hours in the large center, if you've got all these processes arranged, transfer them, the stroke center will do everything. That's under four and a half hours arriving in your department. After six hours, by and large, you will do the CTCTA at your hospital. And between four and a half and six, 
It depends on the agreement you have between you and the stroke center. Some will say transfer, some will say you do the CTA. Well, I can tell you what my experience has been, and this is reality. I have actually, after four and a half hours, if they arrive at my hospital four and a half or five hours, I pick up the phone and speak to the stroke neurologist. Some will say, we're free at the moment, send them right now, we'll do the CTCTA, perfusion CTA. At other times, I've had the neurologist say, you do the CTCTA. Other times, I've had the neurologist say, you know what, we got someone on the table right now, we can't do it, you do the CTCTA, and then call me back. And I think that's a, an important resource utilization and, and planning piece for this, because as we get further and further out, we know that we've got diminishing returns on the investigation and the potential for treatment. So in those very short time windows, the under four and a half hours, we've got a greater proportion of people who are going to be eligible for and may benefit from treatment. In the greater than six hour window, we've got a relatively much smaller portion of all the patients who are going to present who are actually going to potentially benefit. So it probably makes sense to do that investigation at the, uh, the initial uh, institution that they show up at to prevent those unnecessary transfers and then repatriations back and reduce the burden on the stroke centers. And in that four and a half to six hour range, then you're sort of in that equivocal sweet spot. And that's probably, I agree, the place for a, a discussion with your receiving facility to see what the most expeditious way is going to be to manage that patient at that time. I want to emphasize one point. If you look at the studies on thrombectomies in patients, even at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours, the benefits were phenomenal. It's not that the benefits drop off if you do the thrombectomy. What drops off is the number of patients who even qualify for it. So after six hours, you have a high number of patients who qualify. If the patients get to a stroke center between four and a half and six hours, how many of, the, of that cohort of patients, how many actually qualify for thrombectomies? It's probably two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight percent. I, there's no good answer. It's all hidden in the literature. When you speak to the interventionalists at the stroke centers and ask them, and I've done this, of the patients who arrive at your stroke center under six hours, what percentage have you actually done thrombectomies on? I've heard the number eight to ten percent. Well, their denominator is the patients they're seeing. If you work in a peripheral center and see patients, what percentage end up with thrombectomies who are seen with strokes under six hours? It's probably in the area of one or 2%. Now, if you're working in a center and patients arrive after six hours and they have cortical strokes, what percentage actually are gonna end up with thrombectomies based on all the criteria? It is very, very tiny probably well under 2%. Now, if you look at the studies for that tiny, tiny number, and there's diminishing returns in finding them, but for the tiny, tiny number, the benefit is massive, but the number is tiny. That's why it may make more sense, depending on where you're working and what the relationship is with the stroke center, to do the CTCTA in your center after six hours. But don't delay. You've got to phone your, your radiologist now and say, I want a CTCTA. All right. So I think we've hammered out relatively clearly time-based management for these strokes, when to send patients to a stroke center, et cetera. Uh, but I want to get back to the literature a little bit. So based on our deep dive into the literature on lytics for stroke on the EM Cases Journal Jam podcast... The evidence for lytics alone is weak at best. On the other hand, the evidence for endovascular therapy is a bit more promising, although biased by the facts that they were all industry-supported trials and that all the trials were stopped early. Nonetheless, again, regardless of what you think about the literature, let's just say there are certain expectations from your hospital and from the guidelines. The important thing to understand about endovascular therapy is that as Dr. Himmel was saying, it's a very small proportion of patients who will be eligible, and of those, there is a small proportion who will benefit. Again, they have to have large vessel occlusions shown on CTA, 
And after six hours, they have to have a small area of ischemia with a large penumbra shown on CT perfusion. So all that being said, Dr. Dushensky, can you just go through for us what your take on the endovascular literature is? Sure. Thanks, Anton. And uh, uh, for anybody who didn't listen to the original podcast that you and uh, Rory and Justin did on thrombolytics, I recommend that they go back and uh, and listen to that. It was a, a fantastic uh, deep dive into, into that literature. The literature that's come out in terms of the randomized controlled trials for endovascular therapy is quite interesting. And I think it does bear a little bit of highlighting. So I'm going to go over some of the high points on that. We did see certainly with the emergence and more common use of interventional neuroradiology after the the turn of the century, that there was a, a lot more effort put into trials looking for how they could actually benefit patients with this. And so there were a number of trials between 2000 and 2013 that looked at endovascular therapy, which did not show any benefit, although they also didn't show any harm when they were comparing mechanical clot removal or intraarterial TPA compared to systemic lytics. And there were three no-benefit early trials that were notable for this, the synthesis trial, IMS-3, and Mr. Rescue. And at that point, a lot of people were almost ready to write off endovascular therapy. But then in 2015, Mr. Clean was published, and this was really the first study to show a clear benefit of endovascular therapy within six hours. And they looked at almost 500 patients. It was an open-label randomized controlled trial with large vessel occlusions with 89% of the patients receiving TPA as well as the endovascular therapy. And they were able to show an absolute risk reduction of 13.5% with no change in mortality or intracranial hemorrhage. It is notable that they did have worse overall outcomes than the NINS trial. And there were people who questioned whether this one positive trial really justified changing management overall. But on the heels of Mr. Clean, there were then other trials that continued to show benefit with this. The ESCAPE trial, Extend IA, SWIFT Prime, Revascat, Thrace, all of these were used to support the findings of Mr. Clean in patients up to six hours post-onset of symptoms. Now, again, really important to note, they only considered patients with large vessel occlusions on advanced imaging. And it is also important to note that they were terminated early after interim analyses were done that were shown, that showed clear benefit. But the benefits were substantial and they ranged anywhere from 8 to 31% disability benefit uh, compared with the, the control arms. So as Walter mentioned, that's a, that's a really important improvement and a very patient-centered outcome. Now, the fact that all the trials were stopped early is also important. We know that when we stop trials early, that it has a tendency to overestimate the positive effects of the trial. But even taking that into account, it's pretty clear that these, these were positive. And then we saw a, a couple of newer trials that we've already mentioned and, and alluded to in the DAWN and the Diffuse 3 trial that were published much more recently, looking at a broader time frame. So DAWN, uh, published in the New England Journal in 2018, looked at stroke patients with a groin puncture time between 6 and 24 hours after the onset of stroke with an NIHSS stroke score of greater than 10. All of these patients had advanced imaging, CT, CTA, CT perfusion, or MR diffusion scan, and they had to have a demonstrable and significant penumbra with a small infarct core on scanning. And there was clearly benefit in these, again, highly selected patients. They had independent functional status, so a modified Rankin score of 0 to 2. That was about 49% in the thrombectomy group versus 13% in the control group. And this was with assessors that were blinded to the primary endpoint. So as Walter mentioned, it's a really significant benefit for these patients, but it's a very small target population that we're actually looking for with this. 
And then there were some weaknesses that were commented on with the, with the Dawn trial. It was industry sponsored. It used a, a single device. The control group did have a, a high rate of TPA treatment, while the experimental group had higher rates of atrial fibrillation and patients who were wake-up stroke patients. Both groups got quite intensive monitoring and post-stroke rehab management, which may well be superior to what you have in your local community or what can be provided at many centers, and that may affect the degree of the benefit that the patients realized. The trial was stopped early after only a little over 200 of the 500 planned patients, and thus it was it was statistically underpowered somewhat. And the control group in this study had worse outcomes than the control groups in prior studies. Nonetheless, it certainly was regarded as a, as a positive study. Diffuse 3 also looked at thrombectomy in a more prolonged time window, and they looked at between 6 and 16 hours after the stroke onset. They were very similar patients to Don, and again, they required similar sophisticated imaging with CT-CTA, CT perfusion, or MR diffusion, and they used an NIHSS stroke score of greater than 6. And in those patients, a modified Rankin score of 0 to 2 was 45% in the thrombectomy group versus 17% in, in the control group, which again is, a, is quite a large effect size for the patients who did qualify. Some weaknesses of diffuse, while it was non-blinded for, for the intervention, again, it was terminated early after 182 out of 476 planned patients, but at a planned primary interim analysis point. And that did make the subgroup analysis somewhat underpowered. They also had that very intensive post-stroke care like we saw in Dawn, so the applicability of this and the magnitude of the benefit may not necessarily be the same as what you have in your local community. And both of these trials, of course, were conducted at centers that had very high levels of experience with neurointerventions, making the generalizability of it out to the greater community maybe uh, uh, somewhat questionable. Nonetheless, all of these trials certainly seem to be moving towards identifying patients with salvable brain tissue who are most likely to benefit from the, the treatment in question. And it is important to point out as well that none of these trials have actually shown an effect on mortality. And that's often, I think, misstated both within the medical community and within the lay press that we're saving lives by doing these treatments. We really don't have evidence that we're saving lives. We're decreasing burden of disease and decreasing morbidity with this. So what does it all mean? Well, it's a little hard to say. Should every patient with an NIHS uh, score greater than 10 in 6 to 24 hours be transferred to a stroke center stat? Almost certainly not, but it does mean that we need to think about how we select and work up these patients and try to identify the ones who are going to benefit. And the results of these trials have already been incorporated into guidelines for management, which creates some pressure for hospitals to come up with a way to meet the guidelines that have been now published. I, I certainly think it's important remembering that uh, the big benefit was basically this. Is a patient returning home to live independently, or are they permanently going into a nursing home? If your uh, modified Ratkin score was zero, one or two, you're going home to have a reasonable life. If it was three or more, by and large, you're in a nursing home the rest of your life, which is why the neurosurgeons, interventionalists, and stroke specialists are so keen on this, because the fact of it is they often see these patients many years after their strokes, and they get a sense of what the long-term consequences are. So society's in a tough spot. I know there are certain communities, for example, in Ontario, who has a neurointerventionalist on call one to two days a week. So here's what they do at these centers. It's quite interesting. If it's the day the interventionist is on call and the patient has had a stroke beyond the TPA window, they go ahead and do a very aggressive intervention, including a CTCTA. And if it's the rest of the week and they're past the TPA window, they admit them to the hospital for active rehabilitation. So what you do is very dependent on your particular local center and what protocols you've worked out. You know, that brings up resource utilization 
and the potential benefit for these patients versus the cost of finding out which patients are eligible for endovascular therapy, especially after six hours, because I can't even imagine how much money it must cost to work up every single patient who presents between six and 24 hours with a CT, CTA, CT perfusion, maybe with a transfer to a stroke center. Dr. Dushensky, as an administrator, ED chief, how do you balance this small but probably significant benefit for these patients between six and 24 hours who are being transferred and getting the royal workup and treatment? How do you balance that with the cost of doing all of that? So that's a that's a big question, and in fact, I think it's it's much bigger than just looking at it from the perspective of a, of a chief of a department. I think we're really looking at something that is a, a system wide question that we need to grapple with and answer and and figure out how we're going to move forward with this. And the answer I think is going to vary a lot depending on the healthcare system you work on and even the particular organization or setting that you practice in. Here, where we're working, we've got a a single-payer socialized medicine system. And while this is a a really important diagnosis that has dramatic effects on the individual who it's happening to, it is still a single diagnosis out of all of the various conditions that vie for our attention and our resources. And for what we're talking about here, where we're talking about endovascular therapy, there really is a, a Goldilocks phenomenon that we've come back to again and again, where you're looking to find exactly the right patient who meets a very narrow specified set, a set of criteria. And it's a very resource intensive response that that really needs a, a lot of alterations to the current structure of our system across a bunch of disparate areas. So we've got to involve pre-hospital care. We've got to look at the emergency department. We've got to look at uh, medical imaging resources, both locally and remotely. We've got to look at the availability of neurologists and interventionalists and telemedicine capabilities in order to make a system like this really work. And they now not only need to be available, but they've got to be accessible in very compressed timeframes. And we really need to answer the question as to where this actually falls in the cost-benefit equation from a societal perspective. Would these same resources maybe be better spent on other things? Are we getting more out of directing money to harm reduction and treatment for substance misuse or primary prevention or uh, things that affect social determinants of health for large segments of the population? Because no matter where you work, Resources are always finite and we have to make decisions about how we're going to use them. And unfortunately, those decisions, I think, aren't always necessarily based on data and evidence. And when you're talking about something like endovascular therapy, it's high tech, it's really dramatic, it's a very sexy type of treatment compared to, you know, public health policy initiatives. And I think because of that, there can be a disproportionate effect because of the power, the narratives that come around this, right? When you can trot out the example of the person who came in densely hemiparatic and unable to speak and now is playing the violin again, that's a very potent type of narrative. And these are often used to great effect by advocates who are legitimately passionate stakeholders, but who often also have vested interests in influencing the debate and the decision-making around this area. And I think it's important for emergency medicine to be involved in this debate, as do others need to be involved as well. And at some point, there may need to be an uncomfortable reckoning in deciding how this is actually going to be integrated into our healthcare system. I'm not sure that I know what the right answer is, but uh, I do think that we really should be rigorous and rational in how we approach this and consider the evidence very carefully as we make this decision on a system basis. I think they've summarized that beautifully, but I will say this know exactly what your department and your hospital and your community is doing at this point in time. If you do, you'll be comfortable as to what process to follow. If you don't know what your hospital, your department is doing, 
then, then every time someone comes in with a significant stroke, you're gonna have an anxiety attack and that's not good. So know what your department's doing. If your department has no policy, if the chief of your department uh, hasn't had rounds or a meeting or discussion or, or, or a discussion about how your group should function, you have to do this. Once you know what your group is doing or your city is doing or your province is doing or your country is doing, once you know what your local solution is, then you can act in accordance with that. And it's gonna change from month to month and year to year depending on a lot of political and economic factors. Let's say you don't send a patient for consideration of lytics or endovascular therapy for whatever reason, and now you're considering which medications to give the patient in, in the ED. You know, most of us know the basics of if they're not on anything, to start them on aspirin. And if they're already on aspirin, to load them on clopidogrel. And then there's the patient with atrial fibrillation where it gets a bit more complicated whether or not and when to start them on anticoagulants. So Dr. Himmel, let's first talk about the patient who's not in atrial fibrillation. We had talked about dual antiplatelet therapy for high-risk TIA patients. Is there any role for dual antiplatelet therapy in the patient with a completed stroke? The bottom line answer is, no. Based on two massive trials in the late 20th century, can't believe I'm old enough to be talking about the late 20th century, but the two trials were the CST trial, Chinese Acute Stroke Trial, and the IST-1 trial, International Stroke Trial. The treatment after you have a stroke is basically one aspirin a day. The initial aspirin dose of stroke is aspirin 160 or 325. Now, of course, you're concerned about blood pressure management. Until their swallowing has been assessed, they have kept NPO. And of course, aspirin suppository is no longer available in Canada. So we used to use aspirin suppositories. So if you're going to give aspirin, you might have to give it by nasogastric tube. So the treatment after a stroke is basically single antiplatelet agent, and it's aspirin. Now, if you're not gonna use aspirin for whatever reason, then it's clopidogrel. Do you give a loading dose? Has never really been studied in acute stroke. It's never actually been studied, but it's perfectly reasonable to give a loading dose 300 milligrams and then 75 milligrams a day in the treatment of acute stroke. So it's one or the other. But DAPT, dual antiplatelet therapy, in terms of antiplatelet agents, do not play a role in stroke at all period. So we know in the short run, it's never been studied and doesn't play a role. And in the long run, based on the MATCH trial of probably 10 years ago, we know dual antiplatelet therapy is harmful. All right. So that's dual antiplatelet therapy for stroke is the simple answer is no. What about the patient with a history of atrial fibrillation who's not anticoagulated? We had talked about in our TIA episode how those patients might be started on an anticoagulant in the emergency department for their TIA. What about for a completed stroke? Is there any role for starting an anticoagulant in the emergency department for a patient with a completed stroke who has atrial fibrillation? The bottom line, very short-term answer is no. So I'm gonna tell you what this is based on. This is based on studies that were done in the late 1990s and early 21st century. And what they've shown is this. Uh, any potential benefit in immediate anticoagulation was completely undone by the increasing risk of a hemorrhagic transformation of your acute stroke. So if someone has atrial fibrillation and has an acute stroke, a real stroke, which means tissue death with clinical symptoms, uh, you would anticoagulate them at some point, but not in the first or second or third day. In the first, second, or third day, you probably would give a single antiplatelet agent. So no bolus of anticoagulation, no therapeutic dose of anticoagulation. Now there's a small number of people who have severe hemiparesis in which on admission, they may get a prophylactic dose of a low molecular heparin for DVT prophylaxis. 
That's a different issue. But certainly, if you want to take home one fact, it's the following. In the presence of AFib, at the completion of acute stroke, you do not begin therapeutic anticoagulation in the first or second or third day. You do not. The next question, of course, is, well, when do you actually start anticoagulation? That's never been studied in any detail at all. You have to begin at some point, clearly. So here's what is done by most neurologists based on clinical expertise, opinion, and experience. They divide strokes into mild strokes, medium strokes, and severe strokes, whatever that means. If you've got a severe stroke with massive hemiparesis, severe dysphasia, severe disability, the risk of a hemorrhagic transformation in the first couple of weeks is high. They will begin anticoagulation probably after about 10 days and accept the risk of another stroke. If you've got a medium-sized stroke, they will tend to begin anticoagulation at about the fifth or sixth or seventh day. If you have a tiny stroke, they'll start anticoagulation probably on day three, four, or five. So that's the basic guideline. That's your all decision. It's absolutely, completely opinion-based. And you basically play the risk of another stroke versus the risk of hemorrhagic transformation. Now, do we know what the risk of another stroke is after a stroke if you have atrial fibrillation? Has that been studied? Yes, it has. We know based on the IST trial of, uh, I think, about 20,000 patients, a worldwide study, that the risk of a stroke if you've had a stroke and you have atrial fibrillation, the risk of having another stroke is about 2% a week for the first couple of weeks. And you have to accept that risk in the first couple of days because of the risk of hemorrhagic transformation. All right, got it. Now, what about the patient who is being transferred and could get lytics and or endovascular therapy? What medications should we be giving those patients in the emergency department? zero antiplatelet agents, and zero heparin. In fact, if they're going to get TPA, they get zero antiplatelet agents and zero anything in terms of blood thinners for a full 24 hours. Now, of course, you are going to treat exceedingly high blood pressure. Now, that certainly is your job and as well-established criteria for that. But in terms of aspirin or clopidogrel or tachyglor or heparin and are being transferred for possible TPA or possible embolectomy, you give them zero blood thinners. Okay. So to summarize all that, for patients who are being transferred to a stroke center for consideration of lytics and or endovascular therapy, you don't give them any other blood thinners? Absolutely. If they're not being transferred, after you've ruled out a bleed, you start them on aspirin. If, they're, if they haven't been on anything... Uh, if they have been on aspirin, then you can load them on clopidogrel. If they are in atrial fibrillation and not anticoagulated, don't start them on anticoagulation. That anticoagulation will be delayed depending on the size of the infarct. You got it. All right. And there's really no role for dual antiplatelet therapy in the patient with stroke like there is for the high-risk TIA patient. Absolutely correct. Now, I want to talk a little bit about shared decision-making and communication. You'll recall from the case that your patient can't speak, and since they're right-handed, they can't write either. So your patient is really unable to provide consent. Let's talk about obtaining informed consent and shared decision-making and communication. So how do you explain the options to this patient's power of attorney, her husband, in the emergency department. This is really important because as we've been discussing, it's quite controversial. The evidence for all of this is quite controversial. There's a lot of political and economic pressures. And depending on your particular patient, there's going to be multiple options without any definitive answers. So how would you go about explaining to the husband this patient's options for treatment? Well, this patient's at about six hours. So uh, the first thing you're going to tell a husband is that this person's got a serious illness and, and, and maybe at risk of having very poor outcome. And there is, in theory, some treatment possibly available. Presupposing my assessment indicates she's had a cortical stroke. 
And I'll basically tell them there's a small, tiny possibility she may benefit from a surgical intervention called thrombectomy, and I'm going to have to consult with a neurosurgeon. But it's very, very tiny. It's worth pursuing. Uh, it may improve her to the point if she's that one person, maybe in a hundred, who may get enough improvement where she'll be able to go back home. So I tell them there's an option, and I tell them I'm going to get a consultation. I don't want to be too optimistic because I don't want to disappoint the person, but I don't want to be dishonest and give them a completely hopeless uh, outcome. Furthermore, we know rehab makes a big difference. So that's this person in six hours. All right, so that's the situation of, of over six hours. Let's say you're at about three hours or so. You think you can get them to a stroke center by the four and a half hour mark. How's your conversation going to change in, in, that, in that situation? Let me proceed this by saying that there are some physicians, uh, particularly stroke neurologists, who will tell you, you don't even need consent. Uh, this is the standard of care. There are other people who will say, of course you need consent. Thrombolytics are a waste of time. So the, this is all over the map. But I'll tell you uh, an approach that uh, I think is reasonable. If you look at the position statement by CAPE, the Canadian Association of Emerging Physicians, they've actually recommended now, and this is quite a change from 15 years ago, that if the person has a stroke and they qualify and it's less than three hours, that TPA should be discussed and offered. CAPE suggests between three and four and a half hours that you probably shouldn't offer TPA unless you work in a stroke center with research protocols. So that's reasonably conservative by American standards. Now, the ASAP policy with, uh, with strokes, and of course, this has gone through a lot of revisions and a lot of discussion, I'm quite aware of that, says basically up to four and a half hours, you should have the discussion and offer it. So they're much more keen on offering even between three and four and a half hours. That's just the policy at the moment. So what do I do? Well, let's say it's, under three hours or three or under four and a half hours. And, and I'm certainly in the camp that sort of likes TPA more than dislikes it. I know I'm probably going to get some Twitter messages now, but I'm ready for it. So I have a discussion with the patient for informed consent or the patient's family. I discuss the upside and downside. And I, first of all, say, what is your values? Do you absolutely value life at all cost? Do you consider a small improvement worth the risk of maybe getting much iller or dying. I have a discussion like that for a minute or two. Sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it's impossible. Once I get a sense for that, I say, look, there is a treatment, it's called a clot buster. Neurologists and stroke neurologists believe that with this clot buster, there's probably one chance in six or seven or eight, some would say even better, that you're gonna have some significant improvement. And, and there's a chance that you might have maybe 11, 12, 13% have significant improvement. Then I say, but there is a potential price to pay. For that potential improvement, you probably have a 6% chance or one in 16 of having a hemorrhage, which might make your loved one worse or possibly um, die actually. Now the studies will say overall there's no increased death and that's true. But to the given individual, it's a different reality. So I say, look, there's a two-to-one upside to downside. There's a the ratio is there's a chance of a benefit, maybe small. There's a chance of a harm. The chance of a benefit is slightly higher statistically. But if there's a major bleed, the outcome will be terrible. What makes sense to you? But uh, the bottom line to me is it's a matter do you, are you prepared to take a big risk for a small benefit? Or do you value life at all costs and want to take no risk? So that's my informed discussion. Now, clearly, I'm a believer that TPA has more benefit than harm overall. So it would be silly for me to say I'm not going to be a little bit positive in my presentation. For those physicians who feel differently, they're not going to be that positive. But that's my best attempt at informed consent. Absolutely. Yep. Evidence-based medicine was originally described as a combination of not only the actual evidence in the trials, but also the physician's experience 
and additionally, the patient's values. Exactly. So I think this is a perfect example where you really need to integrate all three of those things uh, to make your decision. I, I think this is maybe one of the most challenging areas for consent that we actually face in emergency medicine. And it's it's much more so than when we used to routinely lyse patients for myocardial infarction, where the, the benefits were much more clear cut. The the risks were were fairly well under understood, and not only is it is it challenging to try and explain the literature around this. I mean, for goodness' sake, we've just spent the last couple of hours over a couple of podcasts discussing this to a very high functioning audience to try and make people understand and trying to make a layperson understand this in a very time pressured situation is extremely difficult. I really like the the approach that uh, that you've taken with that to, to try and make it easy for patients to understand. One of the additional nuances that I think is even more challenging with this is that a lot of these patients who have strokes where we're trying to get feedback and input from them and not just their family members or, or loved ones may actually be impaired by the process of the stroke in a way that is difficult for us to assess at the bedside. There was a wonderful little case study uh, published in a journal uh, written by uh, emergency physicians and a neurologist and a patient who happened to be a barrister who had presented with an, an acute stroke and who qualified for thrombolytic therapy. And the difficulties that they had in consenting to the patient where they felt that the patient clearly refused it until his family member was present at the bedside. And they seemed to feel that that was rational in the circumstances. And so they did delay treatment. Ultimately, the patient did get lytic therapy and had an excellent result and had a, a full recovery and was able to tell the caregivers after the fact that he really clearly did not understand what they were explaining to them, that he didn't understand the implications of it, that he thought he was going to get neurosurgery in spite of actually having a good explanation. So I, I think it's a case that helps underline how challenging it really is to consent people when something acute is happening to their brain. So beyond just making people understand the facts and the risks and the benefits and the alternatives, but actually ensuring that the patient is capable of making that decision as well and doing a capacity assessment at the bedside, we all know is difficult and even much more so in this case. So uh, I, I think it's, it's very challenging and really fraught with hazard for the emergency physician. Uh, one last question before we go. Uh, what do you think the future of stroke care holds in, say, the next 5, 10, 15 years? Dr. Himmel? Assuming that the Western world and North American economies don't go into the worst recession known to mankind, become totally bankrupt, assuming that does not happen, and hopefully it won't because my retirement portfolio will be destroyed, but assuming it doesn't happen, here's where it's going. Just look to Germany and the big centers in the States. You're going to have automobiles and ambulances with CT scanners in them, maybe even perfusion CT scanners in them. You're going to have more and more people trained to do uh, thrombectomies, and they're going to be pushing more and more and more research. And indeed, they're going to discover great, wonderful things, uh, which will be helpful, but at a massive expense, and maybe for only a small number of people. But research will go on as it always has. The neurological disease has been the very, very ignored poor sister of cardiovascular disease. At the present time, neurologists have demonstrated there's things they can do, and there's a big political pressure now to get this show on the road. I mean, strokes are still the third or fourth major cause of death, and the number one cause of long-term disability in North America. It's a big issue. And the eMERGE doctors don't treat too many inpatients. But once you've had your stroke and you spend the next 10 years of your life in a nursing home, that's a hell of a way to spend the rest of your life. Multiple studies have shown people fear stroke and disability more than they fear death. Now, was, of course, they weren't asked these questions in the midst of a stroke. 
They're asked those questions in the midst of good health. People don't want to be disabled. So I think that search, research is going to be pushed and pushed and pushed. And let's face it, these neurosurgeons who are doing embolectomies right now or neurointerventionalists, their residencies are going on 10, 12, 14, 15, 16 years. They want to work. Stroke centers want to work. Uh, this is a big area of massive growth, and I think that's where it's going to head, unless we have a massive economic collapse. And then that's a different story for different reasons. So uh, with, the, with the economic uh, caveats that uh, Walter mentions, uh, I think that that's probably true. I think we're going to continue to see evolutions in technology that will probably broaden the base for the applicability of the interventions that we're using for stroke patients. I think there will probably also be greater emphasis on public education in order to identify people early and and emphasize the importance of this to patients, which is going to have effects on what we actually see in the emergency department. I think we're going to see more patients coming in worried that they actually have strokes with more minor symptoms, but hopefully that does actually pick up the ones that we're truly able to intervene on, whether they're TIAs or whether they are significant events uh, in, in progress. I think that we'll probably see greater availability of this technology diffusing out to smaller and smaller centers, which I think will likely be uh, of benefit in the assessment and workup of these patients. And it's going to make the ability to identify those patients who do need to go to the specialized centers better, faster, and easier than what it was. I'll also say that I will predict in the future we will look back on this time and the previous uh, decade or, or 15 years or so, and I think we will probably shake our heads in disbelief that we once used to use thrombolytics as a primary treatment for stroke. I'm not quite as optimistic as Walter is in terms of the the overall benefits of that treatment, but it's a, it's a point along the evolution of stroke care that I think will ultimately become a point of a historical interest rather than a point of primary treatment and management of those patients. And of course, what's our job in, in Emerge and in, in, in society? Well, it's prevention and social determinants and health are a big deal. Tell your patients who you see, see your primary care physician, get your hypertension treated, quit smoking. That's where you're going to get the big bang for your buck. It's tiresome, it's exhausting, it's bloody important. All I got to say is that if one day, God forbid, I have a stroke myself, I would just only wish that one of you guys would be taking care of me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Anton. <laughs> 